Welcome to the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine, where we provide a platform for healthcare professionals working in or aspiring to join rescue, expedition and disaster response teams, a platform to share information, advice and opportunities and connect like-minded Red Med individuals in our community. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 31 of the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine. This episode is sponsored by SOS Coffee, coffee which we use to support medical missions across Guatemala, and we'll be talking about that in more detail later on in the podcast. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined again by Paul Pinder, all the way from Hungary. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hey, Chris. Yeah, good to see, uh, speak to you, and yeah, welcome back to me. It's been a long time since uh, podcast 13. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about Mosul and uh, operations on the front line. Well, we've recently been working together in Europe as COVID compliance supervisors, um, supporting disease outbreaks across there. And I've recently arrived back in Guatemala on the wake of the impact of Hurricane Eta and Tropical Storm Lotta. As you'll know from previous podcasts, Guatemala's population in certain areas is already vulnerable to the impacts of natural disasters, principally due to poverty, deforestation, and limited access to healthcare in rural areas. So talking about that, Chris, so obviously it's terrible what's been happening there, but how has the COVID-19 impacted that even more so now? Yeah, yeah, good point. Obviously, Guatemala in in certain areas, certain geographical areas and communities was already vulnerable due to the poverty. That's been further compounded um, throughout the year by the COVID-19 epidemic with um, reduced access to healthcare, lack of willingness to seek healthcare. Um, The informal economy has been devastated. Cross-regional trading has really ground to a halt. Um, So people have suffered from a lack of ability to mobilize around and also reduced income to be able to seek and pay for healthcare. So they were already on the back foot before these tropical storms hit Guatemala over the last couple of weeks. Um, So thinking about that, what you're saying, obviously the impact to the economy and everything, but what about the impact to the um, healthcare professionals that are working there that are trying to do this work as well as trying to sort out their own families as well as a national disaster. Yeah, I think um, I think frontline healthcare workers have been impacted in a similar way across the world, you know, with increased working hours, constant pressure, constant stress, the, the worry, sometimes separation or isolation from families. Uh, but it's been particularly hard for some healthcare workers in tropical regions trying to do their job in high humidity and high temperatures with PPE on. And as you know, that just further compounds the the stress and complicates everything. Yeah. And then obviously they've they've got the hospitals and the medical centres and the facilities that they would used to be, um, have access to, maybe overrun with COVID patients as well. So their resources are going to be stretched that they could reach back to as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. We did have hospitals purpose built by the government specifically for um, COVID-19. Um, but aside from expanding the availability of resources, um, most other healthcare facilities have been overwhelmed by cases of COVID. But also there's been kind of a re resistance, if you like, to, uh, to seeking healthcare. People think that they're better off staying at home for fear of becoming contaminated or infected if they seek healthcare, if they go to clinics. So we've certainly seen a, a cultural issue. And I think, I think that's everywhere, isn't it? Because it's, it's so fluid, it's changing all the time. And um, to make decisions as healthcare professionals, there's a lot of research going into everything at the moment to make sure we're making the right calls, right judgments at the right times with the information that we're given that we can make the best judgment for these people. Yeah, we've discussed this several times. It's one of the uh, one of the key elements or the core attributes of being a healthcare professional in this period is, is being humble enough to change your mind frequently as the evidence yeah. changes and the recommendations change, our practice changes, and what seemed to be the right thing to do last week is different this week. Yeah, that, that becomes hard, um, it's hard for some people to comprehend that things can change so rapidly because we don't know enough about COVID in, in these times to have a concrete evidence that we can work on for the other diseases that have happened throughout the years. Yeah, and it's the one thing we do know, the one constant we have seen is that it's compounding all of the health problems, particularly here in, in Guatemala where, as we mentioned, there's already the poverty, but... Coming through the rainy season, we've got stagnant water sources and we've got mosquito-borne diseases from Zika, dengue, malaria, chikungunya. So all of these diseases initially present very similar with fever or achy bones and joints, muscles, etc. So it's been a real challenge from that perspective as people do or don't seek healthcare. And then when they do, the symptoms initially present very, very similar. So without testing... Um, it's very challenging to manage. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can only imagine um, from the time I spent out there with you that um, what it's like now and, and, and other places all over the world that are similar to um, to Guatemala, especially with all these the natural disasters that are going on. Well, so, Guatemala is ranked currently ranked fourth on the global list of countries most at risk from the impact of natural disasters, and even when you were here a couple of years ago you saw that the country regularly experiences tropical storms, floods, landslides, forest fires, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. And yeah, that's really served to compound that baseline poverty of the, the recent months. Yeah, the volcano was still, was still pumping out, wasn't it, when we were there? Yeah, it's constant. It's constant. There's two or three live volcanoes here that are constantly erupting on a different scale. But um, Guatemala's emergency services led by the National Disaster Reduction Agency, CONRED, are always training for these eventualities, constantly training for disaster response operations. But they're often hampered, particularly during tropical storms like the recent ones, they're hampered by the geography. We've got over 300 microclimates here, everything from pine forests, high altitude volcanoes, coastal areas, mangrove swamp, tro tropical jungle, lots of hilly terrain. So the geography is a challenge. Transport links were cut off as areas were flooded and roads were damaged. The wind and rain was preventing flights, whether it be international aid flights or 
um, re rescue helicopters coming in to pluck people off the roofs. That was a challenge. And then services becoming overwhelmed, principally due to the lack of resilience in some communities where they were unable to look after themselves, they were unable to bounce back or self-rescue and everybody needed some support. Yeah. What, um, what international support has Guatemala received for the, for the latest um, issues they've had now? There's been a few teams have come in recently and, uh, and as I'll talk about in a bit, some very, very well-prepared teams, which unlike Haiti in the, the 2010 earthquake where there was hundreds of thousands of dead and injured that were principally concentrated around urban areas following the, the 7.3 magnitude earthquake, Guatemala's victims were really spread across the country, particularly in the, in the west and the southwest. Guatemala suffered from severe flooding, landslides, damage to the infrastructure, power, roads, etc. And uh, unlike Haiti, Haiti we saw a massive fundraising effort and uh, a really unprecedented fundraising effort and disaster response. But following that massive response, there were stories and accusations of disaster tourism, ill-prepared first responders, um, and the response and recovery operations there were, were hampered by cholera, just as the operations here have been hampered by COVID-19. So I guess some of the lessons that come out of Haiti, and there were numerous, some of which we talk about on the RedMed course, Van Hoving 2010 cited a lack of preparation and adapted care by first responders. Camacho et al. 2016 highlighted a lack of coordination with the lead healthcare agency creating confusion and failing to direct the resources to where they were most needed. And then Born et al., as we've talked about before, stated there was a need for more robust disaster education for all first responders, particularly the civilian community, something which has been addressed over the years uh, and something that we address further in the RedMed course. So whilst this disaster in Guatemala was on a different scale to Haiti, uh, the key to mounting any safe and successful disaster operation is preparation. And yeah. Llewellyn 2017 highlighted in the WEM journal, Wilderness Environmental Medicine Journal, the symbiotic relationship between wilderness, operational and tactical medicine. And the core elements of these areas, of these disciplines, if you like, really translate well, translate well across into disaster medicine. So you mentioned the, the response, the international response. Normally, we just see an international response when the host country requests it. When, it's almost like triage, when the amount of casualties overspill the national resources or the national capability, that's normally when the, uh, the host nation will request outside support. Um, and then teams will come in on a case-by-case -case basis based on the needs assessment and their, their attributes, if you like. So several teams came into Guatemala to support this effort, both the initial response and the subsequent recovery. And unlike the allegations following Haiti, the teams that came in this time into Guatemala were really, really well experienced and uh, particularly well prepared. With language skills, most of the guys spoke Spanish, um, they had tremendous experience in disaster response and incident management. They brought their own communications. 
They brought their own water treatment equipment, filters, desalination plants. They had experience in primary care, emergency care. It was just phenomenal, really. And some key elements stand out. Primarily, they were self-sufficient, so they didn't become a drain on the available resources for the displaced persons. They had their own food, power, water. Immediately, they coordinated with local government and they support the needs assessment team to say, hey, what's required? This is what we've got. This is where we see us slotting in and being able to help. Um, and it was just impressive to see they could communicate with other first responders and patients and really get things done. That's that's definitely what's needed. Like you say, the lessons have looked like they've been learned now. And, and it is knowing the needs of what the country needs. You take the wrong equipment to the wrong place and it's no good, is it? And it's a waste of resources. Um, yeah, yeah. Knowing your patient demographics, what you're going into. But there's also... There's also going to be them surprises, isn't there, that some ones that will come up that you never thought were actually going to be in that environment um, that will catch you. So you need to have your emergency in your primary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a really important point then. You need to conduct your research to understand the the epidemiology and the geography and, and plan, select your team and your logistics accordingly. But there'll always be those surprises. And that really comes into into play with your team selection. Have you got yeah. an experienced team? Are they able to improvise? Have they got the, the ability and the personal skills and the non-clinical skills and competencies to adapt to the environment? Yeah, you, you've got to make sure that the people that you're putting in there have, have the right skill set and, and the knowledge and, and can handle the situations that they're going into. And obviously after all that, I don't, because not been involved in this at the moment, um, it's the rebuild as well, isn't it? It's the aftermath of everything once... Yeah. Um, the emergency response teams leave and have done a fantastic job as as they always do it's it's that rebuild afterwards that communities sometimes get left yeah um, and yeah. unthought of isn't it so the the phases this time obviously we had the international teams arriving into country they were liaising with government non-governmental organizations and obtaining permissions and conducting the planning phase then they were preparing logistics and deployed to the, the affected areas. And then they commenced the response operations. Um, and we're just about to go into the, the recovery operations. But the response operations, the main effort initially was to rescue people from flooded communities and get them up to safer ground and to reception centers. And that rescue, because of the volume of water, we was often seeing, unlike Tropical Storm Agatha in 2010, where we saw a couple of metres of water. The water was almost up to the roofs of all of the houses here. So the only way you could rescue people was either by inflatable boat, ribs, or helicopter. And a big shout out to our teammates, Max and Alex, who you both know. Yeah. They were, they were literally on ground zero, plucking people off the roofs by inflatable boat and by helicopter for, for days on end. So shout out to those guys. Well done. Yeah, and, and then like you say, the international team has got to get with them because they know the lie of the land and everything else, don't they? It's got to be a joint effort on that, hasn't it? So we can't forget the, the local teams that you've got in Guatemala that do a fantastic job as well. Yeah, there was, a, there was a real mix. There was firefighters, rescue teams, military, police, um, the Red Cross, obviously, and then some of the international disaster teams came in. There was um, PJs, 
paramedics, flight paramedics, most of them either had disaster response experience, incident management experience, um, or they were ex-military. So they had the ability to improvise, adapt. They had survival skills, communication skills, water filtration skills, um, cultural competency, all these kind of things. But then Max and Alex know the ground, know the people, um, to a certain extent know some of the, the dialects, um, and particularly the geography, and were able to link in with the agencies and identify where these teams can fit and where they were best suited to, to do the job. Yeah, and, and, and like you say, that, that's happened over the course of years, but it's taken, it's a long process, isn't it, to make sure that, that we have to get it right for the sake of the people that are, that are on the ground and make it efficient. Yeah, yeah, it's a constant learning process, and that's why it's, it's important to do your post-operational reports and contribute to the evidence and the literature so other people can learn from your experiences. Yeah, you can't just run in there blind and just say, we're going to take this out and the other and hope for the best. It, it's got to be a good preparation. Absolutely. So now we're, we're looking at preparing for the next phase. As the water's subsiding, the, the recovery operations can commence. We've got better access to get in there and either transport supplies or start the repairs to the roads and the properties. But there's going to be a big need for medical missions to attend to primary care issues, exacerbation of pre-existing conditions because of the weather and exacerbation of pre-existing health conditions provoked by the pandemic where people haven't wanted to seek medical support and it's just continued to exacerbate these, whether it be bites and stings, infected skin wounds, um, uncontrolled diabetes, cardiac conditions, hypertension, you know, just not getting access to healthcare and the required medications for eight months is really changing the epidemiology on the ground. Yeah, and, and like you say, when people visit these villages or they get to medical help, it's going to be a lot different to what they thought they were going into, isn't it? Yeah. And so we've traditionally coordinated medical missions across Guatemala on the back of our coffee sales and uh, you could probably help us out a little bit more there because you've taken over the baton on this, haven't you? You've taken yeah, over well, the coffee sales and the projects. Yeah, we've, so between me and uh, myself and Chris, we've managed to get um, SOS Medical Services into the UK and we've taken up on the coffee and we're selling SOS coffee via the UK off, our, off the website. And we've got a Guatemalan and a Brazilian and it's going down really well. It's, it's starting to go. We've also got some merchandise, T-shirts, mugs, um, morale patches. So hopefully anything that we can sell on this side of uh, the pond will go towards them medical missions to, to look after them, people that definitely need it, um, especially nowadays in the last sort of two weeks. So we'll do all the best that we can, Chris, by getting you some funds so you can get out to these people that desperately need it. Fantastic, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's, it's really important to say that that coffee's now Rainforest Alliance approved. So it comes from sustainable sources. It goes back into the community, back into the land. And uh, the purchase of the coffee not only helps sustain the farm workers' employment, but then we also put the proceeds back into medical missions for response operations and recovery operations. So uh, yeah. thanks for taking on the baton there, Paul. We've seen a yeah, a it's not a problem. That's non-profit for um, for SOS 
it is all um, eco-friendly packed and even the t-shirts are eco-friendly as well so we're we're doing our bit for the environment as well as helping out the people that need it that's brilliant thank you thank you very much and thank you to everyone who's bought the coffee so far it's been a great success in the uk yeah they seem to be enjoying it it's keeping them up at night i think <laughs> certainly has that effect with me I think we're going to have to start a, an SOS hot chocolate, otherwise I'm just out of the game. Yeah, yeah. That's not a bad idea, actually. We can get some Guatemalan chocolate. Yeah. Cocoa <laughs> sales are going up through the roof here, so brilliant. Yeah, we'll look into that. I'm all for that. I'm all for that. So the plan is then to, uh, I think you're going to send us a cheque soon or transfer some funds from the, the recent coffee sales, and we'll be working with the authorities and community leaders over the next couple of weeks to identify where the greatest need is and where our capabilities can fit. It's obviously not one size fits all. Um, we need to scale the operation. We need to take in the right people and the right equipment based on the needs assessment. Um, but we want to have a sustainable impact. We want to assess and provide assessment-based care, preventative medicine, education, water filtration, sustainable treatment plans, and hopefully keep going back to these communities. We don't want to just put a, a plaster on or a, a, you know, a bandage on and then leave the community. We, we want to get baseline statistics and, and do the research and identify what's needed, identify what difference we can make over a protracted period over the long term to improve healthcare, not just in disaster recovery operations, but going forward to reduce their vulnerability and increase resilience. So that's the yeah, problem. Hopefully we'll work together with Paul and the community leaders and, uh, and design an appropriate plan over the coming days and weeks and uh, we'll give you some feedback on here. Yeah, that's sort of like what we had in Kurdistan where we'll go back and, like you say, make a difference and then just not just walk away, just keep going back and, and making sure these people get what, what medical care they have and we can see the improvements over a, ma over a period of time and, and really make a difference to everybody. Yeah, yeah, and again, as you said, it all comes down to the planning. It's not one size fits all. We need to plan an appropriate solution and make it sustainable. Yeah. But we'll be, uh, we'll be heading out into remote environments in the next couple of weeks as we plan the clinics and, and execute the clinics. But as rescue, expedition, disaster, and rural practitioners, most of us are generalists. Most of us come from, whether it be hospital, urban or EMS environments, most of us are generalists. And whilst we're executing these roles, from time to time, we need to reach back to specialists to enhance our practice and to enhance patient outcomes. You know, if we need some advice on delayed sequence intubation, if you haven't done it for a while, if you need some advice on tropical medicine or mosquito-borne illness, um, oral fecal diseases, waterborne illness, Sometimes we need to reach out to a specialist. Telemedicine, we've talked about in depth on episode 24, but one of the new tools that we've developed through the SOS and RedMed program is the Remote 24 Telemedicine and Diagnostics Kit. And that's something that we're fielding with all of our guys who operate in remote areas to give them that additional support and that additional reach back to specialist help. So, Paul, do you want to give us a little overview of what the Remote 24 is? Yeah, so this is probably, what, a year, year and a half worth of work going backwards and forwards to make um, yeah. to get this up and running. 
We've trialed it in the jungle. We've trialed it at six and a half thousand meters in the Andes, and it's been all over the place, and it's given us some good results. Even the deepest, deepest, darkest um, depths of Suffolk, it's been trialed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, I think you've you've touched on it a few times. I think Chris um, in a few of the podcasts, but we've looked at this, and it's a remote twenty four system of how we can get reach back to telemedicine or diagnostic tools that we can use on the ground that if we're up a mountain or in a remote location, it's not going to take up all of our time and all of our packaging and all our space in our luggage and our rucksack. The way that the world is operating at the moment, things are getting smaller technologies working in our favour mainly. So we've come up with the remote 24 system. So contents will start from the off an iphone the smartphone of of choice at the moment if if you like that and um, most of our systems work with that so it comes with an iphone with the up-to-date protocols from uh the telemedicine side from sos then we have wi-fi ultrasound so we can connect and it gives you a, a view of what you're looking at on the iphone screen We've got the uh, 12 lead capability from a four lead plug-in straight into the iPhone. And also we'll have the option soon of going to 22 lead for a cardiac view, um, which is fantastic for the remote location. And this will is a four lead uh, adaption to that. So that's the 12 lead machine that you'd lug around in the back of an ambulance is, is vastly reduced. So because we're remote, we're looking at recharging these if you're on to a long period of time. So we've got solar panel battery packs, which are the same size as an iPhone roughly, um, USB, USC, so charging facilities, and obviously the solar, which is a fantastic addition. And then we need to put these um, communications back to, say, the telemedicine ops room, and then we've got the Iridium Go satellite comms, which gives you a... A GPS system where you can pick up Wi-Fi and, and send these images back or information back to telemedicine, an op center that gives you, you know, that reach back and that reassurance on decisions on if you need to evacuate somebody urgently or you can hang on to them for 24 hours. There's a whole system in there which can go for insurance companies for the remote medicine and, and, and the clinician on the ground. Something that we never had, Chris, I think, in, in our time in Iraq and Afghanistan, we never really had a really good reach-back telemedicine system that we could rely on. Or diagnostics equipment. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, if you're looking at carrying a, a life pack 15 and whatever that weighs, 15, 20, 25 pounds, versus the two ounces that we've got today, just a cable that attaches to the iPhone, the capability to be able to diagnose, rule in, rule out an MI, MI pericarditis or, or, or any other issues that you can either treat on site or can justify your evacuation decisions. I think they're worth the weight in gold. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the POCUS, you know, just absolutely fantastic, whether it be for trauma to identify intra-abdominal bleeding, cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax, high-altitude pulmonary edema, covid um, COVID-19 is just absolutely incredible, given that it fits in your pocket, or in our case, in a robust Peli case, and then you can use the Iridium Go 
sort of portable Wi-Fi messaging system, if you like, to uh, through asynchronous telemedicine, sending images back. So you can send your um, ultrasound images back or the 12 lead ECG back via that, or you can have synchronous conversations, satellite conversations through the same iPhone on the back of the Wi-Fi. It's just absolutely incredible for triage decisions in disaster areas or to justify or not very expensive aeromedical evacuations from remote areas. So it can save you money, it can save lives, it can enhance practice in remote areas, disaster response operations, and just gives you that little peace of mind. If you're a generalist, you're a good generalist, and you come across a problem that you maybe haven't experienced before or you're not particularly well versed in, then it gives you the confidence that you can reach out to somebody else and they can have a good look at what you're seeing and provide appropriate advice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and it's no bigger than an A4 size piece of paper and probably what, 100, 100 mil deep, something like that, the case and robust waterproof. And it, it'll, it'll have all that sort of equipment in, which is definitely something that's I don't think is out there at the moment with yeah, anybody. Absolutely. It's, it's robust, shockproof, waterproof, gives you lots of different dynamic options for different environments. Slide under the seat of your car or go in the top lid of your rucksack. So look out for Remote 24. It'll be on the SOS website soon. www.sosmedicalservices.org and on our LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, even uh, and these these teams that have been flying down to, to you from various international com- um, countries, they can take that on, on board the plane and, and it's not going to cause any issues and it's lockable and it's secure and it, it can go as hand luggage. So there's not many places you can take that much equipment in such a small space yeah. um, without going over your baggage allowance. <laughs> yeah, that's the benefit. You know, Some operations are helicopter-borne where size and weight is an issue. Others, if you've got the luxury of being vehicle-borne, um, you might have a little bit more space, but not a lot. And then if you're on foot, then you need to be able to carry this equipment and still be able to operate and not be fatigued through carrying excess weight. So this is just fantastic. It takes up very little space, extremely lightweight, accurate German technology that syncs in with the iPhone and the Iridium Go. So absolutely fantastic. I mean, we're impressed by it, aren't we? So, um, yeah. Very impressed by it. So, yeah, that'll be something to look out for. That's going to be for sale uh, on all of our social media uh, with the option of paying into a subscription service so you can utilise our 24-7 medical ops room and get access to our medical direction team as well. If you're on board a ship or working as a, a lone expedition medic or on a humanitarian operation, security team in the middle of Afghanistan, then you know you can either use the diagnostics equipment and make decisions in the field or you can reach back for further specialist advice and medical direction. So that's something we'll be promoting soon. Yeah, yeah. And I guess on news, aside from the coffee and remote 24, we've launched the RedMed online course, Rescue Expedition and Disaster Medicine Online. Um, that's now available on redmed.education, www.redmed.education. There's the online course, which is live now. And then the on-site course will be hopefully in May this year or May next year, sorry, May 2021 in Guatemala, where we'll talk more about disaster response operations, 
participants will coordinate and be involved in a medical mission. We'll get involved in search and rescue operations. We'll look at telemedicine, point of care, ultrasound, infectious diseases. We'll go rafting, we'll climb a volcano, all sorts of good stuff to put it into context. And whether you choose the online or the on-site course, they're both eligible for form credits or Wilderness Medical Society Fellowship of the Academy of Wilderness Medical Credits um, if you're signed up as a form candidate and for UK CPD credits. I think they get around 47 and 57 CPD or CME credits respectively for each course. Yeah, which is which is fantastic, Chris. Well done on that. That's a really good attribute. But it's... It, we pushed it out earlier predominantly so people that are in lockdown or suffering from travel restrictions and the lack of available on-site courses can still keep up their, their personal development and still develop their portfolios and prepare for when the travel restrictions are lifted. You know, it all helps with registrations and then preparation for travel to the next disaster or ready for the next expedition. Yeah. Yeah, which is, is what we've got to be looking at because um, you know there will come a time when when things will ease, restrictions will be lifted and, and things will go back to uh, normal within the expedition world and, and disasters will still go on that people will still need to respond to and that the course will hopefully assist them in what they need, need to know going forward. Yeah, and they're ideal whether you're an experienced practitioner or you currently work in an urban environment, they're ideal to develop the health, safety and the wilderness medicine concepts for rescue, expedition, disaster operations. So it looks at the clinical and the non-clinical competencies, everything from personal security, safety, communications, cultural competency, disaster preparedness, helicopter safety, um, multitude of things, crush injuries, suspension syndrome, expedition preparation, you name it, it's all in there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what we talked about earlier in this podcast about the teams flying in and, and how they're going, they're fully prepared, which is, is, is the Red Med course, isn't it? It's what you basically cover everything on there that they're going to be looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. That's why it was designed. Yeah. To, uh, to open up the opportunities really and ensure people are as safe as possible and can translate their practice and adapt the care in, in different environments. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, Paul. I need to go and get another SOS coffee. Don't know about you. Yeah, I'll um, nip and get a hot chocolate, I think. (laughs) Yeah, thanks very much, Chris. And um, great to speak to you. And thanks very much for everybody listening. No, it's a real pleasure, mate. Real pleasure. Look after yourself out there in amongst the, uh, the outbreaks in Europe. I will do. Try and keep on it. Anyone that's interested in the SOS Coffee, you can find it on the SOS website at www.sosmedicalservices.org. And if you're interested in the Red Med course, the Rescue Expedition Disaster Medicine courses, whether the online or the on-site course in Guatemala, you can find it on www.redmed.education. Also, a quick shout out to all the disaster response teams, local national and international that came down to support with the disaster response and recovery operations in light of the recent hurricane and tropical storm. So thanks very much to everybody and uh, particularly to GSD from the United States, Global Support and Development. Um, They flew in 
we hosted them in SOS, and then they went off to link in with the uh, the local authorities, and they did some great work supporting communities that had been cut off by the flooding up in the highlands and the, and the affected areas. So thanks very much to GSD, Global Support and Development from the US. Brilliant work. Well done. Yeah, and uh, hats off, very English sign, but hats off from me to everybody out there, Chris, um, all them support and international. Thanks, mate. Thanks very much. Okay, everyone, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take care, stay safe until next time. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Chris. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.